So today we're going to dive right into our message. I'm so excited. This is our fourth and final message of an impossible Christmas. And wow, I mean, wow, has my mind been blown. I, I don't know about you, but I have been changed this Christmas. Jesus has opened my eyes to another level of glory and impossibility. And I just, it just gets me excited. Does it get you excited about believing for the impossible? Does it? You can talk back to me, okay? Somebody said to me the other day, I just want to clap. And I said, clap. I just want to shout. Shout. Do it. It will not offend me. It will not bother me. It may distract me for a second, but then I'll shout with you, okay? So if the Holy Spirit moves you, be vocal. You're allowed. There's your permission. Amen? An impossible Christmas. Today we're talking about the promise fulfilled. The first message was the promise. Jesus was the promise given, not just in the New Testament in our Bibles, but in the Old Testament. He was not just a happenstance. Genesis 3 is the first verse where you see the prophetic about the Son of God coming to earth. Isn't that powerful? He was the promise from the beginning. God had a plan. Amen? And then the next uh, message, I almost said the next episode, <laughs> the next message that we talked about was the choice. You see, we know that Jesus was sent and he fulfilled over 55 prophetic words through his coming. And that is humanly impossible. We know that Jesus is from the Father and the God of the impossible and he fulfilled 55 plus prophetic words and so we have a choice to partner with the impossible or let it pass us by. Amen? We have a choice to be obedient, to trust in the God who was and is and forever will be. And then the next message was on the journey. We looked at Jesus' life and what he did from beginning to end, from his first words recorded in the Bible, I am about my father's business to the point of the cross. And today we are going to talk about the fulfillment. You may think this is a Christmas message, but then you may get confused because it may sound like an Easter message too. And we're going to just celebrate both holidays today. Are you guys cool with that? We are so excited. And we're going to talk about Jesus' birth. Travis is going to walk you into the birth of Jesus. And then we're going to walk straight into the cross. He is good. And he loves each and every one of us. And he is here to do the impossible. Not just then, but now. Not just yesterday, but today. Not just today, but tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Woo! All right, go ahead and open your Bibles or open your Bible app on your phone. Go to Luke chapter 2. The Christmas story. The birth of Jesus. Many of us could probably recite this passage of Scripture from memory. We've heard it so many times. I'm going to read it this morning out of the Passion Translation. And so if, if you don't have that translation on your, on your phone or in person, you just listen as I read it. Starting in verse 1, Luke chapter 2. During those days, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. Now, let's just stop there for a minute because... This can become a little confusing as we keep reading through this story. 
But Judah, the people of God, they were not their own sovereign nation. They were under Roman rule. Okay? So they had been praying for centuries now that a Messiah, a Savior would come that he would set up his own earthly government and kingdom and that he would liberate the Hebrew people from Roman oppression. So that's what they were thinking the Messiah was coming to do, was to completely set them free and reestablish them as their, their own free and sovereign nation. So Caesar Augustus, the second Caesar, Julius Caesar was first, Caesar Augustus was second, he ordered that the first census be taken throughout his empire. Quirinius was the governor of Syria at that time. Everyone had to travel to his or her hometown to complete the mandatory census. For Joseph and his fiancée Mary left Nazareth, a village in Galilee, and journeyed to their hometown in Judea, to the village of Bethlehem, King David's ancient home. They were required to register there since they were both direct descendants of David. Mary was pregnant and nearly ready to give birth. When they arrived in Bethlehem, Mary went into labor, and there she gave birth to her firstborn son. After wrapping the newborn baby in strips of cloth, they laid him in a feeding trough since there was no available space in any upper room in the village. Jesus was born in Bethlehem as the prophecy foretold. So here's the prophecy that was fulfilled in Luke, spoken of in Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are only a small village among all people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Bethlehem was a small, insignificant, and often overlooked city in Judah. But yet, as we've seen, was prophesied hundreds of years before, out of Bethlehem would come the Messiah, would come the Savior, would come the ruler of Israel, God's people. The word Bethlehem actually has two different meanings. The first is house of bread. House of bread. And how ironic that this is where the bread of life was born, in Bethlehem. Another, the, the Hebrew could also mean for Bethlehem, house of fighters. We got to remember, the city, Bethlehem was called the city of David. The city of David, one of the greatest champions of the Old Testament, one of the greatest fighters King David. It was his hometown. Both Mary and Joseph were both descendants of King David, not just Joseph, because it was prophesied that the Messiah would sit on David's throne. He would come out of that lineage. But there was no DNA from Joseph in Jesus. So if he was to sit on David's throne, he would have had to have had David's, that royal blood in his veins because Mary was also a descendant of King David. Mary and Joseph, they traveled about 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to pay taxes. Probably, considering it was the third trimester of her pregnancy, they probably did not travel on a donkey. 
That is nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere does it say that Mary rode on a donkey 80 miles to Bethlehem, okay? Um, you, sh you should try it sometime, and even not being pregnant, to see what it would feel like to journey 80 miles on a donkey. I doubt it would be a very pleasant experience, okay? So there were multiple means of transportation in that time. I would probably guess that she was pulled in some kind of a cart um, with a horse or a donkey. Took them days to get to Bethlehem. There was no room for them. When they arrived, now we have to remember, every person was summoned to return to his or her hometown because of the census to pay taxes, so Joseph and Mary are among many of their family traveling back to Bethlehem. They're not the only ones. And when they would arrive, what they would do is they would go to one of their relatives' home for lodging. Well, by the time they got there, because there was probably so many other family members who had already arrived, there was no room. The inn was not a hotel. There was no Holiday Inn in Bethlehem, no Motel 6. Bethlehem actually was such a small village they didn't even have an actual inn in the city itself. So the inn scripture is talking about would have been the upper room, the upstairs level of a home where guests would stay. So they arrived, there was no room. Um, so where was Jesus born? I apologize in advance. I'm probably going to ruin Christmas for many of you in just a moment. Because Jesus was not born in a stable. He was not born in a barn. He was not born in a cave. There is no mention at all in Scripture of the word stable, of animals being around him when he was born, away in a manger, all lies. All lies. Your, your nice little nativity scene didn't happen that way. I'm sorry. Where was Jesus born? It would have been the downstairs main room of their relative's house. This would have been an all-purpose room that served during the day as probably like a workshop. And then in the evening, it would house smaller, frail animals. The, the, the larger animals would remain outside. The smaller, frail ones would come indoors. And within this room also, there would have been a drinking trough or manger that would have been cut in the bedrock, which is where they would have laid the Messiah once he was born. So, Merry Christmas. I'm sorry. <laughs> Looking at that nativity scene last night as I'm studying, like, it's, it's all lies. It's, that's not how it happened. <laughs> Even the shepherds, they didn't bring their animals. Read Scripture. It says they returned to their flock after they went to see the Messiah. Man, I, I wish sometimes, don't you wish that you could just, you know, transport back in time and see how things actually happened in Scripture? I think many of us would be like, wow, I didn't think, I didn't imagine at all that it happened like that. Because there is no way that Mary and Joseph's family would have said, well, no room, can't sleep here. Hey, that barn out back is real comfortable. Why don't you go there? She's in labor, ready to, ready to have a baby. Um... Yeah, it would have been probably the main room of their home where they had uh, around family who, who loved them, who supported them, who was there with them. Um, just a note, this isn't even in my notes, but the wise men, by the way, we talked about the wise men um, during the, uh, the choice, 
the wise men's choice. And when the wise men came, um, this is really interesting. Jesus would have been about two or three years old. When they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it probably was not a nicely neat, you know, little box tied with a bow here, Merry Christmas. They, they would have brought in treasure chests full of gold, full of spices, full of valuables. These probably financed Jesus all the way up into his ministry. Like Mary and Joseph, they were, they were not poor, um, you know, uh, wow, that, that really kicked on there. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, they, they had all that they needed. God fully supra- supplied all of their needs in raising Jesus. Just a little side note there. So back to the birth. Think about this. How incredible was it that the creator of all that exists, Jesus, right, through him, by his word, all things were created, the word of God says. How incredible that he himself became flesh and blood and became dependent upon his own creation taking care of him. Think about that for a minute. He humbled himself to the point to where he, everything that exists by his words were created. And he said, I'm going to humble myself and become a human, and I'm going to put myself in the position of having to be dependent on humanity for everything that I need. And I created them. I created this, this world. The most amazing thing about Christmas, God became human to redeem his creation. Think about this. He didn't send a messenger. He came. God came himself because of his great love to redeem his people. In Numbers, check this out. In Numbers, we see that the iniquities of the father were punished all the way into the third and fourth generation of children. Let me say that again. In the Old Testament, in Numbers, the iniquities, the sins of the father were punished by God up into the third and fourth generation of children. Yet Jesus, having no earthly father, was born fully human, yet fully God, fully divine, and holy. For what purpose? To give his life, to save his people from their sins. The angel said that to Joseph in the dream that you're going to have a son, his purpose to give his life already before he was even born, his purpose, his destiny was set. He was going to save his people from their sins. And I'm ending with this scripture. It's on the screens. Since all of his children have flesh and blood, so Jesus became human to fully identify with us. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser who holds against us the power of death. He came to annihilate the effects of the accuser. Death, hell, and the grave. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start with a story from Robert Morris. Many of you remember him um, from the Blessed Life series. I have a friend of mine that's a judge. 
one of his friends came to him and said, I got a speeding ticket. Will you take care of it for me? Will you make it disappear? He said, yeah, I'll take care of it for you. A few weeks later, the judge ran into his friend and he said, hey, thanks for dismissing that ticket for me. The judge said, oh, I didn't dismiss it. His friend said, well, why, what do you mean you didn't dismiss it? How did you take care of it? He said, I paid it. I didn't want you to pay it, he said. I wanted you to do your little judge thing and just make it disappear. The judge looked at him and he said, let me ask you a question. Were you guilty? Well, yes, I I was. Then justice demanded that the penalty be paid. If I'm a righteous judge, I can't dismiss the charges against you but I can pay them myself. So many people think God dismissed the charges against us, but he didn't. He paid them himself. Come on. Thank you, Father. Thank you. God became human. He came to make things right. He came to rescue and redeem us. God became man. He came as an innocent little boy, like Travis just said, a baby boy in the hands of a mother that was 15 years old, willing to walk out every single prophecy that was spoken about him. Willing to fulfill every promise, even though we and our humanity continue to hurt him, continue to disobey him, continue to disregard him. We are guilty. But it has been paid in full. You see, the penalty for sin is death. It's complete separation from the Father. Sin cannot dwell in his presence. Justice from a righteous father demanded payment for our sins. He came himself to set things right. To give us the opportunity to stand forever with him. So not only did he come, and not only did Jesus die on the cross... For the forgiveness of our sins. You see, in the Old Testament, they had to make sacrifices. They had to sacrifice. There had to be a blood payment for their sins. Jesus came to be the final, the ultimate, the finished work for us. So our sins are completely forgiven as far as the east is from the west. When we receive him as a gift, we receive salvation. If Jesus didn't really die on the cross, would we be free? I, there, is a, there is a line of thought that, oh, Jesus, he didn't really die from that crucifixion. He just passed out. I want you to watch this video. I've been listening to, reading, and paying attention to the case for Christ because Julie, my friend, gave me her book at the beginning of this series, and I read to you some facts about the prophetic regarding Jesus and how he fulfilled it. This is the case for Christ, and this is Lee Strobel questioning a doctor. This is real. This is based on a true story. And he's questioning a doctor. Did Jesus really die on that cross? 
He's trying to disprove the resurrection. Watch this with me. So forgive me for making you travel all the way out here, but when someone rings me up and says he wants to dispute the most significant event in human history, I feel it's important that we do it face to face. Don't you? Yeah, that's fine. I, uh, I, I appreciate your time. You. Right. Uh, so we're uh, just doing some research on the effect of stress on the hormone levels in mice, which is an ongoing project of ours. But I assure you, you shall have my undivided attention. <clears throat> Okay, I'm, then I'm just gonna jump right in. Um, so my line of attack is this. The reason the eyewitnesses were able to see Jesus after Golgotha is because he never died on the cross. Because if he doesn't die, there's no resurrection. Right? That's right, so, so whether or not Jesus himself or, uh, or someone else took him off of the cross early, or if he fakes his own death, it doesn't matter. It completely discounts every aspect of the resurrection. Right, the swoon theory. Yeah, but he passed out. He didn't die. I'm afraid there's a long line of skeptics in front of you with that hypothesis. Including only a billion Muslims the world over who also don't believe that Jesus died on the cross because the Quran says so. With all due respect to Islam, the Quran was written six centuries after Christ. I prefer my historical sources a bit closer to that. I understand, but, but, yeah. but you can see that it's possible. Mm. <laughs> Mr. Strobel, I am a medical doctor and a scientist. I have seen a great many strange phenomena in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. But the swim theory is rubbish. <laughs> rubbish, That's a, is that a, a medical opinion? <laughs> you know, it is, actually. Um, swim theorists tend to skim over the fact that Jesus was flogged prior to his crucifixion. Do you know what happens in a Roman flogging? Um, yeah, the person is lashed with a whip. No, not lashed. Scourged and pummeled savagely. You see, the, the cowhead whip is braided with metal balls and bone fragments. The flesh on Jesus' back would have been shredded. The very muscles and sinews themselves laid open to exposure. The flogging itself would have left Jesus in critical condition for massive blood loss, which is why he collapsed on the way to the cross that the Romans made him carry through town. Okay, so is it possible that Jesus survives being spiked to the cross? Oh, yes, you could survive it, but it's child's play compared to what comes next in a crucifixion. Slow, agonizing death by asphyxiation. Mr. Strobel, the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the best attested events in the ancient world. There is no historical evidence of anyone, anywhere, ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Oh. And, if you will, the final nail in the coffin <laughs> is this. When the soldiers thrust their spear between Jesus' ribs, do you know what came out? Blood and water. Which we now know is a description of pericardial effusion as a result of death by asphyxiation. This is not a condition anyone could fake. And so to answer your question, yes, it is my medical opinion that Jesus Christ died on that cross. Doctor? But, but, but I, gotta, I have a real problem with most of the experts that I've talked to here. Which is? Which is that most of them are not impartial. And if I'm going to take a guess, I would say that you are not either. And you would be correct, sir. Though I have learned that most impartial travelers who undertake this journey rarely remain so. However, I can refer you to one of the most impartial sources that I know. 
Would you trust the Journal of the American Medical Association? Of course, it is a stellar scientific journal, even I will admit that. On the physical death of Jesus. <clears throat> Clearly the weight of the medical and historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Doc, I gotta tell you, you're, uh, you're not telling me what I hope to hear today. So I hope you could catch all of what he said. But one of the things that he said that Jesus most definitely died from was uh, asphyxiation. I can't say the word today. And that is suffocation. When they pierced his side, blood and water flowed, which meant he was already gone. Because that happens in, and I'm not going to repeat the medical terms. But he, Lee was on this mission to prove that Jesus wasn't really who he said he was. And the part about the, um, the Muslim faith saying that Jesus was just a good prophet, based on hi historical data and how we do history in this world and how we measure things, the Quran was written six centuries after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it actually isn't a valid historical document to say he did not rise from the dead because it was written too late. Isn't that cool? I, I, you got to watch the case for Christ. Read the book, watch the movie. It is so powerful because he went on a mission to decide whether or not Jesus really was who he said he was. Jesus really did what, he, what is written and what he said he did. And the other question that is frequently asked is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really come back to life? This next video I want you to watch is the actual Lee Strobel, who is now a biblical scholar and teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same guy in the movie that was asking all the questions, yes, he did not remain impartial. He did get saved. Amen? So let's watch Lee as he talks about the four proofs of the resurrection. Happy Easter. Get ready. I like to look at the evidence for the resurrection in four categories. The first one is, did Jesus die on the cross? Was he dead? Virtually every scholar on planet Earth concedes that Jesus was dead after crucifixion. We have no record of anyone anywhere ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Uh, even the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, published a peer-reviewed scientific medical study of the evidence for the death of Jesus and said clearly, the weight of the evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Even the atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludemann, says historically it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. So Jesus was dead. The second category of evidence is the early accounts we have for the resurrection. In other words, I used to think as an atheist that the resurrection was a legend and that took a long time to develop in the ancient world. But what I learned is that we have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christian church. 
a creed that is a eyewitness-based report of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this creed has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus. Within months. That is historical gold. So we've got a newsflash from ancient history on the resurrection. Third category of evidence is the empty tomb. And the best evidence for that is even the opponents of Jesus implicitly admitted the tomb was empty. Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now, they're conceding the tomb's empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. So everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. How did it get empty is really the issue. And that goes to the fourth category of evidence, which is eyewitnesses. You know, for most of what we know about ancient history, it comes from one or maybe two sources of information. And yet, for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. That is an avalanche of historical data. So you put all that together, and you have a really good case for Easter. Happy Easter. He said that there were more than 500 eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus after his resurrection. Is anything impossible for him? Is anything impossible for him? Come on. Is anything impossible for him? Whatever you're holding on to that you're saying is impossible, look what he did. Look what he fulfilled. We have been focusing on the prophetic, the prophecies that were written in the Old Testament and partially in the New Testament, uh, that Jesus fulfilled every single one to the end of the story, to the resurrection on the cro- from, the, from the grave. He paid our debt on the cross, but it couldn't stop there, could it? You see, this is, this is what I've been walking through all week long is it couldn't stop at the cross. He couldn't just die for our sins and that be the end of the story because that wasn't the finished work. The finished work was the resurrection. The finished work, the end, was he came back to life, that our king is alive and well. Amen? We're going to go there in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Every prophecy about his death and resurrection he fulfilled. I'm going to read you a list. I'm going to go quick. So just kind of roll with me. I have a list of over 10 prophetic words regarding his death and resurrection that he completed to the T. Okay? Here we go. Christ will be our Passover lamb. That's an exodus. Like the Passover lamb, none of Christ's bones would be broken, Exodus 12, 46. The Messiah's blood would be spilled for our atonement, Leviticus 17, 11. Jesus will be lifted up and everyone who looks on him will live. That's in numbers. Christ's resurrection was prophesied in Job. The Messiah would be forsaken in Psalms. The Messiah would be scorned. The Messiah's suffering would include thirst. They would pierce Jesus' hands and feet. They would cast lots for Jesus' clothing. The Messiah will cry, into your hands I commit my spirit. Everyone will abandon the Messiah. They will plot to kill God's anointed. They the Messiah, excuse me, will be quiet before his accusers. God's anointed will not see decay. Christ's thirst will be quenched with vinegar and gall. 
The Messiah's resurrection predicted in Psalms 118 again. The Messiah will conquer death in Isaiah. Did he do every one of those things? And there are some I didn't list because the list was extensive. Did he complete all of those? From your knowledge, from remembering what happened in the story, he completed every part from being thirsty to taking the gall and vinegar to being pierced in his side, to not having one in crucifixion. They normally break the legs to complete the, the asphyxiation. I can't get that word out. To complete it, they would break the legs. They did not break his legs because they knew he was already dead. The proof is clear. The evidence is there. Amen? He fulfilled every single part. I want to hang out, though, on this last prophecy that I read. The Messiah will conquer death. He conquered our sins. He brought forgiveness. He brought about the new covenant on the cross. But not just that. When he went into that tomb, he began to finish the story. Amen? Jesus rose from the grave to completely conquer death for us once and for all. This is no dead religion. We're not serving a dead Savior. He is alive. He is alive. Historical evidence, non-biblical historical evidence proves it too. That is so cool. That just gets me all excited and all geeked out. I love it. Our king is alive, and not only is this true, he gifted us forgiveness and forever life with him. Isaiah, this is the, the prophecy we're going to go to. Go to Isaiah 25, and it's on the screen. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud wrapped around the people. The veil spread over the nations. It is the gloom of death. He will swallow it up in victory forever. And God, Lord Yahweh, will wipe away every tear from every face. He will remove every trace of disgrace that his people have suffered throughout the world. For the Lord Yahweh has promised it. Where's the promise in there? He will swallow death up in victory. Come on. He will swallow it up. 1 Corinthians, jump with me to 1 Corinthians 15. So that's the prophetic word. This is the fulfillment. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For we will discard our mortal clothes and slip into a body that is imperishable. What is mortal now will be exchanged for immortality. And when that which is mortal puts on immortality, and what now decays is exchanged for what will never decay, then the scripture will be fulfilled that says, death is swallowed up in victory. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Death is swallowed up in triumphant victory. So death, tell me, where is your victory? Tell me, where is your sting? It is, it is sin that gives death its sting, and the law that gives sin its power. But we thank God for giving us the victory as conquerors through the Lord Jesus, the anointed one. So now, beloved, stand firm and secure. Live your lives with an unshakable confidence. Death cannot hold you down. Death cannot have you. Yeah. 
And if that weren't enough, our Savior in Revelation appears to John. And John is so moved. He is so moved. Oh, I can't imagine and I cannot wait. John is so moved by the Savior. In Revelation 1, 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell down at his feet, as good as dead. But he laid his right hand on me. And I heard his reassuring voice. Don't yield to fear. I am the beginning and the end. Come on, that deserves a shout of praise. I am the beginning and the end. The living one. The living one. The living one. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. That means something to us. That means something to our faith. That means that this this is the crux of the Christian faith. Amen? I am fired up. Praise God. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. And ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I hold the keys that unlock death and the unseen world, the unseen world being Hades. I hold the keys that unlock death. He took the keys from the grave. He took death so that we can live forever in him. Amen? So not only do we see this Savior come as a baby, and we see him live and perform every miracle that was promised he would perform, and love every person that he promised he would love, but that love extends generation to generation to generation to generation forever and ever. And when he went to the cross, he paid for our sins, and when he went to the grave, he rose for our eternal life forever. That is something to get excited about. This is not all there is. Do not let the enemy trick you to keep you in the hole to believe that this is all there is. There is so much more. And it's the already not yet. You are already in his kingdom. You are already receiving his inheritance. And you will receive eternal reward in heaven. You will be with the Savior forever in heaven. Amen? Holy cow, that's good stuff. I love Christmas. I love Jesus. Oh my goodness. And you can't have the Christmas story without the cross and the resurrection. The the birth, that means nothing. He would have just been a good man. But because he paid the price, because he was willing to go to the darkest of darkest places, for us, we get to live in the light of his glory. Every single day, even when it looks dark, the light is there. The darkness cannot pierce it. Amen? The cross was the finished work over our sins. The resurrection finished death off once and for all. There's a song I've been listening to. And Trav, you can come on up. It says, here's where the dead things come back to living. I feel my heart beating again. Here's where the dead things come back to living. I feel my heart beating again. This is not just a resurrection life for eternity. Okay? Hear me. He is here today to resurrect a dream. He is here today to resurrect health. He is here today to resurrect your very soul. 
Amen? We have been made eternal because of him. Nothing we do, nothing. It's all a gift, guys. That's the best part about this. This gift, you know, you can buy all the nice gifts, but I pray that you give your children the best gift of all this Christmas, that they know how much Jesus loves them. They know, and I pray not just that they know, but that you know deep inside, that you know to the very core of your being that you are loved, that you are transformed by the cross, that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed. Amen? Are you redeemed? That's, that's amazing. Why did he do it? Why did the Father come? Say it again. Why did he come? Why did he do it? Because God is love and love is God. He never changes. His love for you never changes no matter what you do. It never stops. It never ends. It never ceases. It never wavers. Come on. His love never changes for you. So if you're sitting here today and you are feeling like you are unlovable, he is calling you out and saying, oh, that is so not true. That is so not my heart. I love you with an everlasting love. And today we're going to light the candle. Today's the candle of love. And how perfect is it? How perfect does it fit? His story fits together even now. Even now, centuries later, when sometimes we get it all messed up, we go back to the simplicity of the fact that John 3.16 states beautifully, Pastor, you can light the candle for us. For this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only unique son as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish. Hallelujah. <laughs> will never perish, but experience everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, but to be its savior and rescue it. Come on. He is not here to condemn you today. He is not here to say you need to be in that grave. He is here to rescue you. He is here to save you. He is here to deliver you. Amen. So now there is no longer any condemnation for those who believe. Stand with me. There is now no longer any condemnation for you who believe in Jesus. But the unbeliever already lives un under condemnation because they do not believe in the name of God's beloved son. So there's two things here. You know who you are. Amen? You know who you are. There are thousands and thousands and millions that do not. Why do we have this resurrected Savior? Is it for us to keep? Is it for us to hoard? Is it for us to keep to ourselves and just do our own little thing and stay quiet? No, we have the love of the Savior to give it away. 
the resurrection power is not for us to keep. It is to give away. Amen? I'm going to read you one more scripture. Matthew 10, 7 through 8. As you go, hear this. This is your call. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Come on. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Now freely you give. Do not let the enemy silence the resurrection power of Christ. Do not let him silence what Jesus paid for, what he gave us. Freely you have received. Now take his authority in Jesus' name and you give. And you call back to life. You call back to life. In Jesus' name, amen.